boys and welcome to episode 107 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining the show for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium using the gaming system Wrath and Glory, which was created by Ulysses North America and is now run by Cubicle 7 Games. We also cover all the historical 40k RPG lines as well, going back to the Black Industries and FFG days. So if you are joining us the first time, do check out our back catalogue too. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'd know it's been a good long while since we last had a show. I think nearly two months, or actually over two months. I think it was the end of July we last published. So, yeah. Uh, we've been pretty slack recently. I spent some time in the US for work recently. We actually had a, a show scheduled to be recorded well over a month ago now, but Mike got pretty horribly sick and we had to, had to suspend our plans at the time. So I, I thank you all for your patience. Um, obviously there's going to be a bit to cover today, but uh, hopefully you still get quite a bit out of the show. Normally, before we talk about the content of the show, we talk about what we've been doing in the last two weeks of gaming. Why don't we talk about the last two months of gaming, Mike? What have we been up to? Um, um, we did your Wrath and Glory game. We've done Wrath and Glory. We've done a couple of Battletechs. Done Pendragon. Pendragon. I've obviously been doing the... I think we just did the 10th show of the Wrath and Glory game on the AP Gaming Real Twitch channel as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, how's your Wrath and Glory game going? I think it's going Okay. Yeah, the, the prologue's pretty much done now. You guys get to move into the actual meat of the, the, the story. story. Yep. And uh, we'll see how you guys go now that you've got some choices ahead of you. Yeah, I think what's it? October 11th, I think we've got scheduled. Yes, one. yes, That's right, October yeah. 11th. So at least we've got a in. game scheduled. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's been actually been a pretty quiet couple of months for gaming for us. Only once again because of Mike being sick in my own travel as well. But uh, yeah. Pendragon has been good because we do that online. Um, so we don't do it at anyone's house and. It's only a small group. It was four of us total playing Pendragon. That's been working out quite well. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so hopefully you've been getting more gaming than we have. Oh, and I got to play 40K proper again on the weekend. I got my ass handed to me by our friend Steve. Yeah. I just had one of those days where, like, there's nothing wrong with the strategy. I was, I was ahead on points the entire game. And um, the thing about our friend Steve is that, you know, he listens to the show from time to time, uh, so I can say this freely, <laughs> uh, is that, he tends to play, he doesn't mean to be, he tends to play the, the annihilation gameplay. Yeah. So where he loses, where he loses games is usually when there's objectives in the game. Um, you know, especially where it's like the tactical objectives from cards. And we were doing the mission from, um, chapter approved 2018. I can't remember actually, vital intelligence, sorry, which uh, on, a lot of people on the internet call multi-ball, which is the one where you've got five objectives, you roll a dice at the start of each turn. 
whatever objective you roll is worth two, the rest are worth one. And if you roll a six, they're all worth two. Yeah. Uh, and so it's really about moving around and controlling as many objectives on the board as possible and keeping your opponent off objectives. And, and I, I feel personally that, that I played the objective game more um, in that one. And, and that was reflected in the points when I was ahead like, 14 points to 7 I, I, I have to say, that's a particularly difficult objective, though, because he plays Thousand Suns. They're not exactly known for being a mobile army. <laughs> so, well, so it, it, not it, really the sort of army that rushes from objective to objective quickly. He did well, though. I mean, look, there, there, were the, the, there was one objective that he never got anywhere near, um, and I think that I threatened every objective at some point in the game. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but I had one there. He just never, never went into that corner of the board, basically. Um, but the problem I had was I just rolled terribly. I mean, the best example I had was I needed to move three rivet marines off an objective because they had the troops, there were troops that had the, um, objective secure keyword basically. Uh, and I only had, um, howling banshees. I had a full squad of howling banshees charge into a squad of rivet marines with a, a, a an allied nearby giving them reroll one. So they said so like 13 attacks hitting on threes, reroll ones. And I rolled like seven twos in the initial attack. And then this is a problem with, with Eldar when it comes to melee Eldar because they've only got the strength three and not much they've got actually gives them plus strength. So they're wounding Marines on a five plus. Yeah. So yeah, it can be pretty tough. Yeah, you need that, you need that power axe in there on the, can the sergeant or champion of a banshee squad take a power axe? No, they, they get, or is it only the Exarch? Can, can take yeah, well, it? the Exarch gets, so, so, cause remember the Exarch is the captain of the squad. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't confuse it with the, with the Phoenix Lord, which is like the Jack's yeah. arsenal here. Yeah? Um, yeah, so Howling Banshee Exarch can have, uh, what's it, it's, I can't remember what it's called now. It's like, it's like a double bladed staff. Um, I, I don't remember See, the staff. I remember when head. they used to just have power axes instead of salt. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess. They've got, Showing they've... my age here. <laughs> Been a very long time since I've had the glory of killing more elder. Well, yeah, you might have some more soon because they've got new kits coming out, obviously, with yep, Psychic yep. Awakening, which we'll talk about shortly, but yeah, they've shown new Howling Banshee models. Um, new, some new Drakari as well. So let's come back to that in the news section. Yeah. All right. Um, also in the show, we talk about a featured podcast. Uh, I want to call attention to the Forge. So this is now, I think, the third Genesis system that we've called attention to on the show. If you've listened previously, we had mentioned, um, the Dice Pool podcast. Yeah. Um, which was, uh, one of the hosts there was GM Hooley or Ian Hooley had been on our show in the past as well. Um, he has now, so, so the Dice Pool podcast has finished up. And he has now started The Forge along with GM Chris from the Order 66 podcast. So they're five episodes in. It's on the D20 Radio Network. Um, and once again, they're talking all about the Genesis system specifically. And uh, especially GM Chris has done a lot of work building some really awesome plugins for Genesis. Like he's done a Harry Potter one. He's done an Assassin's Creed one. And, and really nice stuff. Like I like the fact that in the Harry Potter one, they sort of took the the lightsaber building rules where a lightsaber has like a crystal and an emitter and a power source and change that to Harry Potter ones. And they've got like a, a material and a central core and a length. And, and they're the things that define what a, what a one can do in Harry Potter. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, do check out the forge uh, on the D3 radio network. Uh, for today's show, we'll do our regular news section. Uh, as promised, we're going to talk about the orc species uh, as a rule set. I had said last episode we were going to cover off the Orc Boy, and then I realized we actually had already covered the Orc Boy in episode 100. Yeah. So we're going to do the Orc Knob instead. We're going to knock it up a notch. Yeah. Um, we're going to do a review of Apocalypse, since we've had a chance to play that out now. Yeah. Um, then, actually, a question I see happening quite a lot on 
the Wrath and Glory Facebook page and, and people I talk to that play the game is they want some more guidance on how to build encounters. So we're going to talk a bit more about how to build balanced encounters in Wrath and Glory. And then finally, we'll, we'll close out the show too. So, because the other big thing is that in the month or months since we last uh, broadcast was Gen Con. Um, there wasn't a lot of news at Gen Con, but um, Jacob Smith, who's regularly um, contacted us and communicated with us on the show, and we met uh, at Gen Con last year in person, uh, he was there. Uh, and so I've got his notes ready to go, uh, which we'll link in the... Um, uh, in the show link as well, but also we'll, we'll cover that in the community section at the end, what, what Jacob found from, from Gen Con. Okay, sounds good. All right, so let's get into the news. Commanded knowledge, accessing Imperial archives. So you'd think having been two months between shows would have quite a bit of news to talk about, and, and there is some news, but, but maybe not quite as much as you would think. I'll start off with Cubicle 7. So Cubicle 7 has been doing their Warhammer Fridays where they have more and more details about Wrath and Glory. Yep. Um, I got to say, it does feel a little bit sparse on what they've actually posted. So the majority of posts recently have been new artwork. Um, they've, they've currently got a twenty percent special on some of the Wrath and Glory titles on Drive Through RPG or through their own web store. Sorry, which is things like Dark Tides, the GM screen, and the decks, which is a warehouse clearance. So maybe this probably is physical product. Um, they've released re- released a new cover for the book. Um, they actually had a call for freelance writers as well. It's it's closed now, but they are asking people to submit writing samples if they wanted to write for Wrath and Glory. Um, the last we'd heard was that the PDF update was supposed to be coming in September. As we're recording it, this is now the 1st of October. Um, so that was, that's delayed. And I think the physical product was due in November as well. So, um, yeah, we haven't really seen anything new other than artwork on the Cubicle 7 site, map, but they've obviously been quite busy with the Age of Sigma stuff they've been working on, and also um, the one fantasy roleplay. Um, recently, they redid the old um, Enemy Within campaign. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess we'll just wait and see at the moment. Um, hopefully, we'll start to hear some more stuff now that September has passed and moving into October. But every single Friday, there is some content of some type going up onto the Cubicle uh, 7 website. On the Games Workshop side, there's a lot more information going on. So... Right now, we're about to start an event called Psychic Awakening. Um, they said this will last for around a year and will include rules updates for every single faction, which is interesting, obviously, because some of the factions have zero psychic stuff going on. Yeah, but Psychic Awakening means that stuff's going to... I mean, even Emperor's, you know, World Eaters. Yeah. There you go. Or, or Black Templars. Tau. Tau. <laughs> They're going to have to deal with the fact that there are more psychers in the in yeah, universal and, galaxy at large, so and, they've got to deal with that. And if so the new rules give other factions benefits, they've got to find a way to balance that with the factions that don't have access to those sort of things as well. Um, so we haven't seen a lot. There's been two little story videos posted on Warhammer TV. So the first one, uh, people watched it. It looked like it was an Inquisitor who said, you know, that in the coming tumult, you know, we need to find allies, and then the Eldar symbol of the Howling Banshees appeared in fire over her ritual, and so a lot of people started to speculate maybe this will be some sort of temporary alliance between the Imperium and the Eldari. Uh, they released another video this morning as we're recording. Um, uh, actually, I can't put my notes here because it was sort of like it was. Have you seen the video yet this morning? Or yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. So it was presented as though it were a shadow seer. Um, giving a riddle or like a, a, a sort of a, a information as a riddle to the uh, to the Inquisitor, 
and they sort of said, oh, you know, see if you can guess uh, what, uh, what, 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 what this, what, what's going on, what's the riddle about, you know. So I, I've actually written down each line of the riddle, and I'm going to tell you what I think each of them mean, okay? So yep. the first one is, um, where is it? Here we go. Uh, the children of twilight bleed in the void. So pretty much the elder are having a bad day. Yeah. Right? Um, the stars weep for the murder to come. So stuff is going to go down soon. Yeah. Um, well, Kate, I'd Kate. say that the murder to come would relate to Cain. Yeah. Uh, chaos bleeds from the Dathodean. Now, the Dathodean is their word for the Eye of Terror or the Great Rift. So, yes, chaos comes out of the, the Great Rift. We know that. Um, death stalks from the Dark City. That means new Incubi models coming soon. Yeah. Um, they wish eternal slumber on the sleeping. So they're good at killing stuff. Uh, the Phoenix is rising. The Phoenix is rising. New James R model coming soon. Um, uh, yeah. Yep. The blades of the Dark City will clash with the children of Moray Heg. There'll be lots of artwork of Incubi fighting howling banshees. Yeah. Uh, the assassins of the Shadowed Masters meet the screams of the Chrome Goddess. Same again. Ditto. Uh, a Phoenix will fall. A Phoenix will fall. So maybe James R dies in as well, but then can come back later anyway. That's where the Phoenix Lord works. So. I don't know, I feel like it's a pretty easy well, prophecy to make sense. <laughs> well, the, the few changes there I'd go with. Yep. I reckon the Phoenix will fall, the Phoenix will fall, because in the, read their law from previous editions, yep. shortly before um, the fall of the Elder, one of the Phoenix Lords is supposed to turn traitor. So I think that might have something to do with it. Um, so that might have been mixed around, because certainly... It's implied. So the books I've read more recently imply that the Phoenix Lords only were created after the fall of the Eldar. Yeah. That that assumed assumed created the, the Phoenix Temples immediately following the fall, basically. Um, but yeah, I suppose. They, they, I mean, there's certainly there's certainly opportunity for betrayal there. I mean, oh, there isn't because what's um what's the leader of the Incubi called again? Uh, um, starts with D. Uh, Drizzed, but not drizzed. Because yeah. this is implied he, 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 he used he to be was, the father was, of scorpions. That's yes. right. Yeah, it's been exactly. implied quite heavily. Okay, so it looks like they're, they're doing. Certainly, it all seems to be built around howling banshees and, and incubi, but um, but then at the end of that sort of video, elder versus dark elder. Yeah, at the end of that video, like the inquisitor sort of says, okay, it looks like we can't rely on the elder because they've got their own problems. So that seems to put to rest. The, the belief that the Eldar and, and um, Imperium are going to find some common ground yeah. for the duration of the event, but I guess we'll see how it all how it all turns out. But certainly, going back to what we talked about before, the, the new Incubi models, the new Howling Banshees models, the new Jane Zar all look fantastic. Um, I noticed that with Jane Zar, you know, the figure which was notorious for being only a single toe connecting it to the base now has no toes Connecting it to the base, it's connected by her hair instead. Yes, <laughs> much more stable. Yeah, well, they, they've done that with it. I mean, obviously, you've got Celestine, which is joined by only the scrolls. Oh, yeah, you and, just you know, have to look at the, the the undead models from from Age of Sigma, from Age of Sigma, like, like, the gash with it. it's like yeah, you know, by, the, the, by the protoplasm and everything. Yeah, all these things held together by, by vapors and gases and things like that. It's yeah, like, oh, that's right. it. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I really do hope that. I mean, it feels. It's great to have now plastic um, uh, aspect warriors coming because certainly Eldar, out of all the races, I think that um, Bell of Soul did a recent thing where they worked out how many how many resin kits do each army still have. Yeah, and I think that Eldar were either the first or the second when it came to total resin kits, uh, but because that's all it's because of all those um, aspect warriors. 
Absolutely. Um, I mean, they're not exactly a large range to start with. So having that many, I mean, it's understandable that Imperium would have a lot of resin kit, you know. Yeah, but it's really characters now, pretty yeah. much. So, um, yeah, certainly, uh, I mean, I think that it, I really do hope that it's the start of bringing out more and more Aspect Warriors. No, I certainly hope so. Yeah, I hope they just don't stop it at Howling Banshees, especially because Howling Banshees aren't great in the meta right now because of that aforementioned Strength 3. Yeah. Um, all right, what else? Is oh, Sister the Battle. The Sister the Battle box set is coming in November. I think I was reading somewhere recently that the price of that, um, the, the, the price of the mooted is 249 US. Mm. So we're talking over 300 Australian. Yeah. Um, which, okay, can we accept the fact that it's got, it's got a codex built in as well? So normally if, yeah. if you're paying 70 to $90 for a codex, or whatever, then that's sort of included in the cost of the miniatures. Um, and I think that, I, I, to me, I wish they'd put the codex outside the box. And my reason is that if they'd done that, I probably would have bought two boxes and a codex. Whereas I don't want to buy two boxes because I don't need two codexes. Yeah. Um, Sounds so, understandable. Yeah. But people are so to speak, like, what are the 25 minis in the box? And there's, there's a whole bunch of different ideas there. But it does look like probably there'll be at least one tank in there, probably a, a rhino. Um, or maybe, uh, maybe the inlet, I'm not sure. But. I can see them doing the Emulator and Rhino kit as being one kit again, like it was with the old Sisters of Battle. I don't think they'll try and break it up into two kits. Yeah, there's already a Rhino kit. So if you just want a Rhino on its own, get the Marine Rhino kit and just slap some crap on it. Yeah, but the one they the one they pictured on the Warhammer community thing has been um, has had extra plastics on it with Sisters of Battle logos and everything as well. Yeah, so absolutely, like but I can guarantee kit. you there'll be leftovers by the time you finish making your model. Yeah, it's true. It's exactly. You know, get two of those and one normal marine rhino, you'll have three, you know, three rhinos. Yep. Uh, we saw the September big fact go up this week as well. Um, yep. I think it was quite a small change, quite a small set of changes. I mean... <laughs> there were some interesting changes. Yeah. I have to say that the complete 180 on the on the rules for if a weapon hits with a six and does a special thing, what does the new hit count as? Originally, they said, well, that counts as having hit with a six as well. Yeah. And now they've said, no, no, it most certainly does not. And they actually have a little little blurb that says this is a complete 180 from our last rule because it had unintended consequences of infinite hits. Yes. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what, what um, game system it was someone was talking about where there was, like, um, used cards to make combat attacks and... There was like, and and the, depending on how good you are, indicates how many cards you put in your deck. Yeah. And if you ever run out of your deck, you just shuffle your cards and start again. And there was a card called Kick, which does damage and then allows you to draw another combat card. So all you do is you have a combat deck of only one card being Kick. And so you Kick, you draw another card. Oh, it's Kick. I get another card. Oh, it's Kick. You know, and then someone posted to their forum saying, that, you know, this is a problem with the system. Um, you know, you've got this situation where this can just repeat itself ad nauseum. And the designers replied back, don't worry, we fixed it. And people loaded the new card deck, and that card was now called Infinite Kick. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what game this was now, but it's, it was, I thought that was quite a funny way of dealing with the problem. Um so yeah, I think the big fact uh, I, uh, they I, I noticed from the game I played the other night that vindicators have suddenly become a lot more dangerous in the game, like being a oh, D six attacks, D six damage. Um, there's a there's a little bit of controversy about uh, Dark Angels fact. Yeah, because they're they're an assault three rather than a heavy D six. Yes, 
and people are saying, it's a typo. And other people are saying, that's one hell of a typo to make. <laughs> it's not like you accidentally slipped and just wrote 2D6. You, you typed an entire different word with a different number. Yeah. So the question is, are Dark Angels Vindicators different? Or what's going on? So we'll probably see something from Games Workshop about that at some point. Especially because um, I noticed with uh, the Imperial Guard Codex, and someone might correct me, but when I looked at it, it mentioned that Lehman Russes that have demolisher cannons, the Lehman Rush demolisher, have the same demolisher cannon stats as the new Vindicator. So now they're heavy DC and they lose special ability. Demolisher cannons are demolisher cannons. Um, But they didn't update that on the profile for the Baneblade, which has a demolisher cannon. Mm. So. Does it not say for the FAQ demolisher cannons? No, it specifically says in the profile for the Land Raider. Oh, okay. Well, they may have missed one or maybe it's a different... Different, slightly different demolisher cannon. <laughs> I don't know, exactly. Who knows? Yeah. Um, and I guess the other big news in 40K right now is the release of the second edition Space Marine Codex. Yes. Now, this has been, I think, relatively controversial because this came not long after the second edition of the Chaos Space Marine Codex. I was expecting something similar to the Chaos. Yeah, so if we go back to the Chaos one, this was not long after the launch of Shadow Spear. Um, where you had the new um, War Scrolls that came with Shadow Spear, so things like the Venom Crawler um, for the Phobos Pattern Marines, for example. Uh, and they updated the Chaos Book to basically have those War Scrolls in there. They did it. They also included things from previous FAQs, and they just did new new artwork. Sorry, new, mostly new photographs to include pictures of the new models and the new paint schemes in the, the photo pages. Yeah. And, and obviously the pages that talk about what... Yeah. You know, better so they didn't change the stratagems, they didn't change That's the relics. And, and all, the, all the fluff was the same, you know, most of the artwork was the same. And then you've got... so people And people went and bought that book for whatever a codex costs, and they bought new cards out, so you went and replaced your cards as well. Um, and now you've got the Space Marine Signet Codex coming out, which is a whole new book. So, yes, it has got the War Scrolls in there. Yes, it has got the new stuff from Shadow Spear. But it's also got all new chapter rules, including successive chapters. It's got all new stratagems. Uh, it's got new fluff, new artwork, new pictures. It is basically a new book. And on top of that, they've gone down this style where you've now got codex supplements. Yeah. So rather than having the situation where you've got your standard codex compliant chapter, or mostly codex compliant chapters other than you know, Dark Game of Blood Angels, Space Wolves, in the the course breakthrough book, they're going to be coming out as a series of, I think they said eight codex. Six. Was it six, was it? Okay. Six. Um, cause we've Should already, have been eight, but it's only six. Yeah, because I was wondering this, because you've got, because they released Ultramarines White Scars up front, then, yep. they, then they've already done um, Iron Hands and um, Raven Guard, and it looks Salamanders like Salamanders and Imperial Fist will be next. So I was wondering whether things like, yeah, would, would Dark Angel Blood Angels, Space Wolves be... Codex supplements, or they be whole extra books. So it sounds like I think they should just be books. codex supplements. Yeah, bigger codex supplements, but codex supplements. And I think that um, Black Templars should probably get a codex supplement as well because they're divergent enough that they'd probably use it. I understand that they'll probably have some stuff in the Imperial Fist one because there was Imperial Fist successor, but I think realistically they could have just given them their own supplement as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I mean, getting back to the original point, 
the controversy has been that, so you had this situation where this new secondary chaos book came out and then suddenly here's this new Imperial chaos book, so this Imperial codex book. And for the first time, I think significantly so in eighth edition, there is some codex creep going on. Oh, absolutely. The, the other issue I have is the fact that you just had the chaos book come out. Yep. Then what? Two months later, a month later, you release the new Marine book. Yeah. And there's a rule in the Marine book for the uh, the Angels of Death thing where when they charge, they get an extra attack. And then they're putting the FAQ, oh, Chaos get that as well. Yeah, Make sure you add that in. And it's like, well, why didn't you just put it in the new codex, which came out a month before? And this was something I was talking about some of the other, the other day. They were saying, surely, like, they would have been working on these books in some way concurrently. Yeah. That they, you know, cause they and at some point, they would have gone, you know what? This marine book is so different. Maybe we should put the chaos book on the back burner. Yeah, because I mean, the chaos book would have been very fast to turn around. Yeah. Um. So the the marine book would have been under development for some time, and it was all the speculation, obviously. And the chaos book would have been turned around and could have been turned around in only a few weeks' time because it's really just new photographs and take the stuff you'd already written for Shadow Sphere and put it into the book. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so, and because it's all new decks as well, um, to go with these new codex, uh, new codexes and codex supplements. Uh, and from what I've heard, uh, and I don't go to Tom too much, but I've heard through the, you know, tournament reporting and through Bell of Lost Souls that Space Marines are doing extremely well in the meta right now because of this codex creep factor. Well, um, realistically, this is where they should have been from the beginning. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not a Marine player particularly. But this is what Marines should have always been. I mean, they did very early, they did well very early on in eighth edition because they were the first ones to get a codex you know, yeah. after the indexes, and pretty much every army got a leg up as their codex came out. Almost every army. Some like uh, I mean, orcs did okay, but there were certainly no, orcs did very well. Yeah, but there was I think there was a few that didn't do very well from having a codex come out for them. Um, but overall, I think there was an improvement from the index. Yeah. Um, I guess while we're talking about the indexes, the other bit of news that came out of 40k recently was that they've effectively um, end of life the indexes now. Yep. They've got this thing. I think, like, is it calling Legends? Warhammer Legends. Legends Warhammer Legends. Where if it doesn't appear in the main codex, it is now you know Warhammer Legends. And um, basically what they're saying is that everything in the codexes will continue to be FAQ'd, rules tested, play tested, and developed as the time goes on. When they bring out the legend, whatever they are at that point in time, they will never be changed again within this edition, presumably. You know, they, yeah. they can't close the door forever. But um, and for that very well, reason, at some point they have to. Yeah. How long do you keep supporting the Zogs? Yeah. I mean, come well, on. Well, but they, they didn't support. The I know, in but the, in the it's the same sort of thing. You know, at some stage you've got to just draw a line and say, no, we haven't made this model in twenty years all this army or anything to do with it, do we really keep supporting? So, so I'm going to call out a model that they still sell today that I bought recently that is now Warhammer Legends yeah. and therefore would be inadmissible in, in tournament play. The um, Rhino and Land Raider Command Vehicles that I got from Warhammer World. Okay. Yeah, they, they don't appear in the codex. They only appear in the index. They are still sold as new models by DW today, granted only in certain stores. Um, but... They're now, you can still use legends in tournament. If the tournament if the tournament organizer allows it, and they've actually said when they did this announcement, they would actually encourage tournament organizers not to allow legends on the basis that it won't have the same level of rigorous playtesting that 
the the rest of the stuff does have. So simple fact is, after only a little bit of time, the stuff in Legends is going to be a case of why would you anyway? Because it's going to be garbage. And yeah. the overcosted garbage. I mean, I guess the main thing is, and it's not really those sort of unusual off the wall things that, like, you know, the, the space ring of this integrated cannon people wanted. It's more the stuff like a captain on a bike. Yeah. You know, um, that people wanted to have, you know, a, a, a chap, chap on a bike, that sort of stuff, because. A librarian in Terminator armor with a storm shield. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Such radical ideas as carrying a shield when you're already wearing Terminator armor. Because, yeah, I mean, silly there is this whole sort of feeling that, that 8th edition in some way is putting um, modders, or not modders, you know, like um, kit bashes or all that sort of stuff um, a- a- out of the path because yeah. there's no scope for taking this model with this variant weapon and such. Death Guard are the pr- perfect example of this. How many of their character models come with one loadout and you can't change their weapons? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Pretty much all of them. Yeah. They come with this sword, this pistol, that's it. Yeah. Or, at best, you can change his axe for a scythe. Yep. Um, prim- uh, Primaris Captain in Gravis Armor gets the the bolt of fist, you know, and that's, that's it. That's yeah. the only options. There's no, there's no variance in your, in your Primaris Captain, basically, yeah. or your sorry, Gravis Captain. And, and to be honest, that's actually my, my biggest complaint about this entire edition, yeah. is, is, is the lo- lack of choice on your models. You know, oh, I have an exalted champion of chaos. You can't have a jump pad. Yeah. Because they're saying, oh, we don't sell an exalted champion of chaos with a jump pack. Well. But you, you sell jump packs as a as a separate add-on component as such, you know. Yes, so exactly. That's the GW side. Um, talking about the computer gaming side, not really been much news. On, I, I don't know. Like, so there was a long while when, when Warhammer games were coming out left, right, and center. And the only thing I've really noticed in the last couple of months has been that they've announced that there will be a Total War Warhammer 3, which is under development once again by Creative Assembly and published by Sega. Um, and I, I haven't actually played Total Warhammer 2, but I have a lot of friends that play it. Um, yeah. So Total War Warhammer 2. Anyway, um, but yeah, that's been any sort of news when it comes to to GW computer gaming. Yeah. I guess, you know, they're more focused on now TV shows and... Oh, oh we haven't mentioned comic books. Yes. Yeah, that was that was the other big Part, controversy today. Was, with Marvel. Yes. Um, oh, the things I can say about <laughs> this, really. I mean, well, well, come on then. <laughs> so. Well, the main thing is, you know, everyone's been complaining. Oh, they've, they're all going to become Disney-fied. That's it. The company's going to get bought out. Oh, it's going to be terrible. There's going to be no grim dark to any of it. It's it's all just garbage. I yeah. Mean, I, I, somehow, I don't know where people have gotten from that. Marvel's doing a comic adaptation of Warhammer that Marvel is buying Warhammer. Yeah. Um, I think that's where people's sort of fear has come from, and that's certainly not something that has been hinted at in any way, stretch or form. Then there have been Warhammer 40K comics before done by a variety of different publishers, um, and it's just that Marvel is quite prolific. And because everyone now associates Marvel with Disney, you know, and obviously with the MCU and with... Yeah. Uh, all the elements there as well. Yeah, and um, people seem to think that just because they're doing comics about it, it's suddenly going to be a crossover thing. Well, I don't remember the last time I saw Star Wars in in the, in the X-Men. Yeah. I mean... I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there's been some fun times where comics have done crossovers that are always non-canonical. Yeah. You know, so I, I've still got somewhere my, like, Batman versus Aliens versus Terminator comic, you know, and I can tell you now that DC don't consider... Aliens and Terminators to be a part of their universe. Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they were just fun little comics, you know. And because 
how many times do people say, oh, you know, space marines could totally kill whatever, you know, the aliens from Alien as such. Um, <laughs> maybe maybe one day we might see, well, actually, not from Marvel, I don't think, but uh, <laughs> I don't think people should be so worried about this particular movie. I think it's just an opportunity to get Warmer out there in, in an additional medium to get more people into the game, and that's what the objective is. That's why they're yeah. doing TV shows that now is to try that and make money. Yeah, that's it. And, and, and the way they make money is by selling plastic crack. Yeah, and they to sell plastic crack they need they need crack addicts. Yes, and to get crack addicts they need to inspire them to come and you know have a look. have have the first it is free sort of thing. Yeah, so. <laughs> It's probably that analogy got dark, you know. But uh, in any case, it, it's I don't think this is going to be a fan base. I think this is just another maneuver they're taking to try and yeah, um, develop their brand. Making computer game. Yeah. Same sort of things was complained when people started making computer games. Oh, they're no longer going to make models on the tabletop anymore. It's all going to be a simulation on a computer. No, you can't keep charging people for the same thing that way. Yep. But EA had published some of their computer games in the past, and I'm sure EA is seen by everyone as the there's a horrible... <laughs> the, the masters of the downloadable content. <laughs> yeah, well... Because it was it... Um, I think Warhammer Age of Reckoning was EA, maybe. Um, I'd have to look it up now. I'm not sure, but... It's... Yeah. Any case, that's our news. Long news section. Let's get into the proper part of the show. Okay. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. For today's rule system discussion, I want to focus on the orc species. We did cover the orc boy before, but we didn't actually cover off the species rules like we did with the Eldar in the past. Yeah. So uh, the orc species um, is a 10 build point species. So just like uh, the Eldar in that respect, uh, it is also a base tier one, uh, has a speed of six, same as humans, which is interesting because I think orcs have a speed of five in the tabletop, don't they? I think most... Yeah, most boys are five. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so um, they've been brought up to human speed in this one. Um, they get a, a modifier of plus one to their toughness. Which I think is actually quite a... Because a lot of stuff goes off toughness. So wounds yeah. goes off toughness. Yeah. Resilience Orcs goes off toughness. should be tough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, personally, I would have given them a plus one strength as well, but never mind. Toughness is good enough. Yeah. Um, the... Okay. Their special abilities are... Uh, they get outsider, same as Eldar's, which is basically a plus two doing number on any interaction tests with anyone with the Imperium keyword. Um, once again, I still find this ability to be you know, half of what it needs to be because it's to imply that, you know, Imperium don't like orcs, but Eldar, no problem at all. They're completely fine with the orcs. It almost seems to be like it needs to be a rule where any race gets the plus two DN to interact with any other race other than like, you know, say, Ogrens and humans, for example, which are they're technically just a variation of human anyway. Yeah. Um, but that's the rule that's in there. Uh, they also get Orky which lets them add plus one to all interaction tests. Um, also, uh, bigger is better, um, where they get to calculate their influence using their strength instead of their fellowship. So, you know, if you were the sort of person that thought fellowship was a dump stat, it's been even more dump statted now. With for rocks. <laughs> for rocks. Yes. Although, I suppose, you know, we'll, we'll come back to it about the knob, but for the knob it might also apply. Um, what I think is interesting with orcs in the system is that they added in the clans in the same way they showed, you know, the different chapters for the space marines, the different craft worlds for the Eldar. But in the case of the orcs, the clans each also give a benefit. So, for example, Goths gives you a bonus die to any melee attacks when charging. Uh, Evil Sons lets you add D3 bonus die, or dice, when you're piloting a vehicle. 
at its maximum speed. You've got to roll at the start of each turn to see how many extra dice you get. Yep. Uh, Bad Moons get to add two wealth. Death Skulls get a bonus dice to all tech tests and acquisition tests. Uh, Blood Axes get a bonus dice to leadership and stealth tests. And Snake Bites get two bonus dice to stealth tests. So... I thought they got two bonus dice to survival tests. Sorry, survival survival tests. Sorry, I'm not taking (laughs) Can't read my own notes. So, in in any case, the situation there is that on top of what the Eldar... So, you look compare with the Eldar, who are also 10 points, who also get plus one on an attribute, in this case agility, who also get three abilities, one of which is a detriment. In fact, two of which are detriment, because they get both... Um, outside and then also um, the emotional one, which is also a negative, where it's also get two benefits, and they also then get to have the benefit of being in their clan. Yeah. So they're actually probably put up a bit better than they all are in that respect for the same points cost. I'm going to mention something about game design yep. as a concept. For some reason, in game design, people always go attack is more valuable than defense. Yep. Therefore, having higher attack stats will cost you more than having higher defense and protection stats. I don't know why that is, but I think it comes down to the fact that agility helps you with your shooting yep. and toughness just helps you survive longer. Yeah. Now, I don't know why, but for some reason, game designers go, yep, they want to attack better, it's going to cost them more. Because I mean, in terms of the build point saving, it's identical. Yeah. So, um... so really, it, it just comes down to the fact that they'll be have the one higher than maximum agility, the extra dice of attack. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean, that, that's really, that's the, the orc race. Um, I, I guess there's only a little short section to cover off that off because next step we're going to be talking about the orc knob. Yeah. But, I mean, I think that it's just worth noting. It's, it, it, probably the one thing to not forget is the orc clan benefit. If you're, if you're building a character, um, just keep in mind you've got to make sure you include that benefit from your clan too. Um, you are limited, of course, to those six clans, um, which I think, I think there's six clans from the tabletop RPG, or yeah. the tabletop war game, it's just if you want to make your own clan up. The, the only thing missing there is Freebooters, but, um, oh, that's true, yeah. but they're not really a clan. I mean, Freebooters are just orcs that have left their clan. Yeah. And presumably they would have come from a clan and would probably carry the benefit from that clan. Yeah, I suppose since it's genetic, maybe. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> they're orcs. <laughs> I suppose they'd still carry it with them. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's start talking about the York knob then. All subjects report to the administrator for career assignment. So for the knob, I mean, let's start off with what separates a knob from a boy. Because, you know, in many ways, a knob is... <laughs> what does look on your face? <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> a, a, a knob is really a, a, a big orc boy at the end of the day. Um, yeah. a, a bigger, stronger, because I mean, orcs continue to grow and get stronger the longer they live. Yep. Um, I and mean, the higher they rise in orcish society, the stronger and bigger they get. That's it. Yeah. I mean, primarily, the responsibility of a knob is to effectively manage groups of rank and file boys. They are they're a command unit effectively. They 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 are a leader class and they simply direct the the squads of boys in there whatever whatever action is required. Um often knobs will be given specific tasks by the war boss. So you know, the war boss will tell them to go and you know claim this objective or loot this you know enclosure or whatever the case may be. Uh and in some cases um knobs can be formed up into 
elite units of all knobs, you know, where more more brutish power is required than simply a squad of boys led by a knob. Yes. Um, but fundamentally, you know, first and foremost, they are that leader walk, um, below, a step below a war boss anyway. Um, the rules for orc knobs, uh, they cost 60 build points, which is actually quite high for a, a tier 3 archetype, which they are. Um, their minimum attributes are, well, sorry, they have to be an orc, as well, you can't have a human orc knob. Um, well, the, duh. Yes. <laughs> Continue. Oh, come on, you could do a fun little story there about you know, the human rape by orcs, couldn't you? Well, they, they, yes. just, they wouldn't get bigger and stronger, though, the same way orcs do. <laughs> you could, and it would be terrible. It would be terrible, yes. Um, so the attributes are they need strength 4, toughness 3, uh, and they need intimidate skill of 2. I would probably, as a GM, go on the assumption that any orc knob includes being an orc boy and probably also require them to have the two weapon skill required by an orc boy. Um, but something you, you made an orc knob with no weapon skill. That's, I guess, a, a life choice you can make. I wouldn't encourage it. I wouldn't encourage it either, no. Uh, they get the keywords orc and also their clan. Uh, influence is plus two. Uh, they get a rule called boys, which gives them command of a mob of their rank times three boys. Um, so if you were doing this in a campaign, um, so say for example, you're a mixed race campaign, like somehow the Inquisition or whatever, or a road trader is working with an orc knob. Yep. That orc knob could have a squad of boys. If you were doing it as an all orc campaign, um, I guess with, how do you distinguish between the ascended an ascended boy and the miscellaneous NPC boys that are in the knob squad? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I'd say that probably other characters, if they have ascended boys, yeah, are some other form of specialist. Yeah, they're, they're, they're not a knob, but they are on the same sort of tier as a knob anyway in yeah. terms of the awkward respect. Yeah, that'll probably be. Tech, you know, yeah, or, or pain boys, or mad boys, or whatever the hell you've chosen to do with your your orc. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, and then war gear wise, they get heavy armor, a custom slugger, and a custom chopper. So gun guns and armor, pretty much. No, no need for any of that sort of bedroll or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Ten foot pole, any other sort of you know, adventuring gears, just guns and armor and a, and a knife, big knife or big axe. Scribing set. <laughs> um, when it comes to building an orc knob, um, key characteristics, obviously strength and toughness are the really big ones. I think initiative is important for orcs, given they are ten- they do tend to be more melee focused. Although you could also include agility yeah. for the shooting side. Um, more so than boys, I'd probably also take a look at. Fellowship for an orc knob. Yes, you don't need fellowship for influence, but it still affects some skills you may want to use as a leader, basically. Uh, and then also potentially willpower. So, so, sorry. Yep. If you're an orc leader, the only skill you should be using is intimidate yes. on your other boys. <laughs> That's it. Nothing else. But like, yeah, leadership is leadership is important. No, not not for an orc. Boy. Okay. Intimidate. Right. Intimidate. Right. Intimidate. Intimidate. Okay. Dump that fellowship. Yeah. And consider willpower. Just from the point of view of... Yeah, the, you, sh- you should probably be the guy that can actually keep you guys from running away. Exactly right. By right. yelling at them and stopping them from... And, and not running away yourself, most yes. importantly. Uh, in terms of skills, 
I think I mean, athletics is you're going to have a high strength anyway, but I mean, it doesn't hurt to put extra points in athletics. Yeah, certainly ballistic skill, um, cunning. I'd probably be the one sort of intellect skill I'd be putting in there because they are all car cunning. Um, intimidate, as you said, apparently not leadership. Um, leadership, I suppose, maybe if you've learnt things from the humans, but yeah, yeah. stealth. One possibility. I mean, you are a giant it, orc. It, it depends if you've gone the commando route. Yeah, be a commando knob. Yes, <laughs> or knob commando. Knob commando. I'm not sure which way it'd be. But yeah. yeah, but I mean, look, you've got scout dreadnoughts now. You can have scout knobs, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, uh, survival uh, and tech. I think orcs are generally quite good with tech. Um, the only one I sort of took off the the boy list was really pilot because I don't see. I mean, other than. Mega knob out suits. I don't really see knobs piloting vehicles that much. Depends what sort of knob you are. You might be a fighter race. Yep. Oh, it could be a knob on a bike. Knob on a bike. <laughs> oh, wait, are they legend or are they? No, no I think bike knobs are still around. So, since, uh, since, um, what was the recent game they put out that was like Gorka Morka? Speed Freaks. Speed Freaks, yeah. I think, I think yeah. you've had, yeah, um, bikes are a thing again, so. Yeah, and buggies. Yeah. Um, in terms of talents, I would actually... I quite like the idea of using Augmentic to get the Iron Gob. The Iron Gob. Yeah. For 20... I think it'll be 23 build points. Gives you plus one armor, which stacks with your heavy armor as well. And it gives you, like, a... I think six plus two ED melee attack when you bite with it. Uh, on top, you get to add your strength as well. So, with your minimum strength of four, it's a ten plus two ED. That's better than a chainsword. Yeah. Uh, even when you're disarmed, you can use your Iron Gob for that sort of thing. Um, Unless you're disjawed as well, <laughs> which has apparently happened once before, at least, <laughs> to have your jaw cut off the first time. Yes. <laughs> I didn't thought that way. That's true. That, that, that doesn't make quite sense. Uh, although it could, have been, it could have been a voluntary thing, though. So Could have been. Yeah. Although, I, I mean, some, sometimes it looks like the iron jaw is like a, a external fixation that's been attached Attached on. to the actual normal jaw? Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Right. Orc tech. Orc tech. Who knows? We'll ask those orc pain boys next time we see them. Um, all right. Then also the other two, I mean, I guess orc talents are things like, um, mob rule, which says you add your rank to resolve tests for your orc followers, which you will have some obviously, uh, and shootier, which lets you increase the armor rating on guns by half your rank. Can be all right. If you, unless you're really going that, that, that melee path, you know, shootier won't help your iron gob or your, or your custom chopper. Yeah, that's true. So, but you know, or you can also go obviously things like Hardy that sort of stuff if you want to play up the, the resilience of the orcs. When it comes to playing an orc knob, I mean, it's, when it comes to playing any orc, really, um, you got to remember. That, so first off, that that might make might makes right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, for everything in orcs, if there's a dispute, it's usually solved through violence, and that's just accepted. You know, if, if you beat another orc in combat and win your way, they're not going to be there going well. I got screwed over. They're going to go, well, he was, he was right, I guess. They, they may take legal recourse. No, they, 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 they may wait until they're stronger again and take you on again, but at the end of the day. Well, usually they're, they're not live after that. Orcs don't accept that. Um, orcs, I think, in generally, or in general, are pretty positive creatures. You know, they, even when they lose, um, they, they treat that as a positive thing. It's like, you know, that we, 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 we either won or we lost, which means we've got a chance to come back and fight and win again. Yeah. Um, so they sort of have this sort of concept of victory in all things. You know, if, as long as they're alive and fighting, things are good for them. So I'd say that, you know, I don't know if quite, happy is quite the word I'd use for them, but they are certainly, 
they're not dour, you know, edgelord, basically. They are... Um, yeah, most certainly. Yeah. Um, and finally, um, remember that most things orcs do is for the good of the war. You know, it's all about, you know, they're not motivated by things like peace in our time or whatever. It's all it's all about, you know, how can, how can I get into more fights? Yeah, I, I think one of the important things to remember if you're playing an orc is to be very action before thought. Yeah. I know that goes against what most games are, and it can really – it can cause problems in a campaign if you're the only orc there and everyone else is playing things, but really they should be giving you objectives that suit your orc abilities. You know, you're not supposed to be thinking, you're supposed to be doing. Yep, that's it. <laughs> Do what I thought. So that's the that's the orc no, I think it'd be a lot of fun to play. Um, I think that it will be hard to campaign – a character like this in a mixed group. I mean, I'm so I said I'm now ten sessions into a campaign where I'm playing as an elder in a human group, and you know it, it, it's it's when I say it's a struggle from game to game. I, it's not like I don't enjoy it, but there's all something comes up in pretty much every single game where the fact that there is an elder in the group becomes an inconvenience somehow. Yes, you know, and um, and it should be. Yeah, and, and this is and this is where the race that can presume you know can in some way hide what they are. You know, it would be very hard to pass an orc off as anything. Other than an orc. An orc, you know, in, in yeah. real society. <laughs> yeah, it'd be so, pretty tough. Yeah, maybe, maybe every time some orcs move, just tell the orc to stand still like you're a stuffed trophy. <laughs> and see how well the orc takes that suggestion. Yeah, I'm sure they would love that idea. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go on and do a review. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So one of the bigger releases in the last couple of months for Warhammer was the release of the new Apocalypse rule set. Now, Apocalypse has been around for quite some time in 40k, um, but yeah. I think that this it, this edition marks a significant change away from what Apocalypse used to be. You know, pretty much if you go back to the first Apocalypse books, it, it was pretty much a giant book which said, "Hey, you can now use lots of tanks in one game," because previously, you know, by the time you started putting lots of tanks on the table, you blew out the points total. Um, I'm going to start off right from the beginning from saying I, I appreciate the fact they've done it this way. Yeah. Because Apocalypse is essentially what made 7th edition completely unplayable. Yeah. Because it brought in detachments, which ruined the game. Yeah. And by saying, no, we're not going to do that this time, we're going to not bring all this stuff into normal 40k and have to dumb down normal 40k to make it so that Apocalypse can actually work. They've just said, no, we're going to make it its own rule set. Yeah, I mean, and getting back to that point. So the whole thing was the old Apocalypse editions were really just a tack-on rule set for 40K. Yeah. Whereas this Apocalypse edition is its whole own rule set. It is derived from 40K in that it uses some of the same concepts. It uses, uh, like, a lot of the attachment concepts are, are, are the same. But that, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's playing and resolution mechanic is unique to itself. Yeah. So, in you go through a run through of a apocalypse game, basically, you, you you build your army using detachments, uh, and it's based on the power level score. Now, the power level isn't identical to the power level in um, the forty k regular rules, but you can see how it is in some way derived. So, for example, um, I because we we're talking about apocalypse after the game of forty k we played on this weekend, yeah. because the other player Steve hadn't played apocalypse yet, and he asked like, okay, what is Give me an example of what would a 100-point army be. And so we looked at the armies we played with, you know, on the night in 40Ks, and I said, okay, well, my army... How, how many points was you go? Uh, we ended up... Because it, it, 
he he bought what he had, and I just matched points. So it was like sixteen. I think it was sixteen hundred in the end. It was like fifth. I had like fifteen ninety. He was like sixteen oh four. You know. Um, but it's interesting because so there's only like fourteen point points difference there, but the power level, my army power level in the forty k rules was eighty one, and his was one hundred and seventeen. Wow. So that's a, that's a pretty big difference for only a fourteen point points difference. Yeah. Um, but then I said, okay, so let's look at what these two armies would be as an apocalypse army. So my eighty one point craftworth army. Became an eighty-four, so eighty-one power level army became an eighty-four power level pockets army. Steve's like one hundred and forty, one hundred something point, whatever it was, um, became a ninety power level army. So, so still some bit better balanced in that respect. Yeah. Um, and and certainly the expectation in apocalypse is not necessarily that you get it right to the exact point. Yeah, there, there are there are rules that apply to whoever has the lower power level. You know, so. It doesn't matter if you don't get it to exactly. It's 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 more of a guideline to get to somewhere around there. Um, and the standard game might be 150 power level, for example. So you've got 300 total on the table, and that could that could be a game which goes for three to four hours, you know. Yeah. Uh, and that would be the equivalent of maybe a two to two and a half thousand point. I mean, certainly if you if you're playing a two and a half thousand point game with mostly tanks in 40k, it's going to be going a lot longer than four hours. Yeah, you know, you're pushing probably upwards of six hours. Like everybody's right on the ball with knowing what they're doing. Or you, a lot of stuff gets killed very early on. Which it would. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, which actually leads me to the other good thing about Apocalypse, because first off, although you still have initiative in Apocalypse, you take turns doing doing attachments, attachments one at a time. So rather than one player taking all their actions, they do one detachment, and then their opponent does one detachment. And then it's back and forth until everybody's acted. On top of that, when you take your turn, you do all your movement, do all your shooting, you do all your melee, but you only record the damage on your opponent's models with tokens, which means that nothing is removed from play during the turn in which everybody is acting. Yeah. So at the start of the game, if you've got a hundred things on the board, a hundred things will get to act because they won't get taken off the board until the end of the turn when damage is actually applied. Yeah. There's an actual resolution round. Exactly right, yeah. So the the core mechanic is your opponent, you shoot your opponent, you roll and hit as normal like in 40k. Once you've hit, you've then got a damage versus personnel or damage versus armor you're rolling on a d12 um, to try and put a wound marker onto your opponent. So there is no sort of concept of toughness. The thing is either personnel or it's armor. Um, so a... Rhino is as easy to damage as a knight is. Yeah. Um, but what the difference is, obviously, is the number of wounds they've got. So in the resolution phase, you've then got small mass markers, big blast markers, depending upon either how many wounds you took or the types of weapons you took the wounds from. So you then roll a save for every single marker you've got, D6 for a small blast marker, D12, sorry, D12 for a large one, for a small blast marker, D6 for a large one, and any foul ones become wounds. Most vehicles have two wounds. Yeah. So as soon as they make two failed saves, they're removed from play. You know, bigger things, some knights will have five, maybe six wounds. So it takes a lot more to remove those things. But still, you can easily knock a knight off the board with enough firepower in the first turn. Um, and they just keep going on. And so uh, there are different games you can play, different objective types, different rule sets. But fundamentally, it allows you to get a lot of bigger models on the board and play the game in a much shorter time. 
So I think you and I did a trial game at 100 power level. Yeah. Um, and to give you an idea, and this is going from me now, because this was well over a month ago we first tried tried this game out. I had Space Marines. I had a Stormhawk, a Storm, sorry, Stormhawk, Storm Raven, um, a Land Raider, a Predator, a Vindicator, Redemptor. a Redemptor, um, no, 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 no Repulsor, Repulsor, yeah, and then a squad of Primaris Marines, um, and a, cap- and a Captain to try and go and claim objectives. Yeah. Whereas you were playing with Imperial Guard, where you had Stormlord, um, four Lehman Russes, um. You had a squad of guys. You had a Valkyrie. Um, and the... Uh, there more tanks? No. You had a Scout Sentinel? Scout uh, Sentinel. Armored, armored Sentinel. Armored, armored Sentinel, Sentinel oh, sorry, attached sorry. to the squad yeah, and, and the cat and, ca- and a commander, basically. So, uh, and that game probably took us, what, two and a half hours, would you say? Yeah, and that's just stopping to look up the rules constantly because yeah. we'd only just start learning it. That's it, exactly. So I, it, it was... A much faster football player, play. And I compare this to other game systems that have scaled versions. So if I go look back to Battletech, for example. So Battletech is a very crunchy game to play a four-on-four Lance versus Lance fight. It can be a few hours. Or you can pull out, um, uh, we've got, um, the name of it now. Uh, they've got a quick version. Yes. Alpha something. Um, Alpha Strike. Alpha, Alpha Strike. Alpha Strike. That's it. Um, where, you know, four versus four can be done in 15 minutes. Yeah. But it is very much a case where in Battletech, you, 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 your unit comes off the field with certain damage. And if you're doing campaign play, it's really interesting to track how fast can I repair that damage, how can I get the parts. Whereas in Alpha Strike, you're either there or you destroy pretty much. There is damage, but you, you go through it very quickly and units get wiped out very fast. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like Apocalypse is completely done out of the point that nothing matters. You know, um, if you go after an opponent's thing, you're going to take it out. If you put all your fire onto, you know, a, a stomper or a knight, it's probably going to die that turn. But that's a tactical decision on your own part to say I'm going to put all my fire into one particular opponent. Yeah. Um, the only thing I'll say about Apocalypse that I struggle a little bit with is the fact that it has a card system. So the idea is that you have your warlords on the board, which is you have, you have multiple leaders, and they generate these order cards. So rather than having stratagems, you've got these order cards you can play, and you've got to build your deck before you start the game, and you're drawing from that deck. Um, my main issue is that if you if a group of friends buy one Apocalypse box set, you've only got one deck of cards. Now, there is a rule in the game for how to share the cards out, where basically if everybody wants the same card, you effectively put all the cards in once in a pile, and you deal with that, and that's how people get those cards randomly. Whereas if everybody had their own apocalypse set, they could all build the deck they want to build. Yeah. Um, I wish they made the deck available separately. So that, yeah, yeah. That, that would be a better way of doing it. Also, I mean, I think that maybe they were pushing for the whole sort of deck building mechanics of like Magic the Gathering makes that popular. I, I, I struggle to find, I, I struggle to build decks. And I, don't, I don't think I'm going to make these awesome combinations. It's more just like, okay, I want that card, I want that card, I want that card. I only have two of those. Okay, I'll just take these two. You know, it's not not like it's a really strategic decision. It's just process of elimination, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but you know, they do also add something to the game. But overall, I think that Apocalypse was a great launch. I also like the fact they brought out these battle forces because I every year I get excited for Christmas time at GW because they have battle forces coming out. They're always great value. I go through in Excel and work out which battle forces give the most saving on the dollar or the most points. For a dollar spent, you know, and then here, right in the middle of the year, bang, out come like 
12 new battle forces to analyze. Yeah. Um, and hopefully they'll still do some more at Christmas time. Um, uh, I, 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 did you buy any of the battle forces? No. I didn't know. I've, I've got enough stuff at the moment. No, no, which no, is no. unpainted. I've got enough plastic shame sitting there. <laughs> I, I bought the Imperial Knights one, which is good because now, uh, in two weeks time, there's going to be new armies on parade, um, event. And so I'm putting together my Hawk Shroud army into a diorama. For that now, so uh, I've got a total of nine knights now. I'm going to try and put eight on the board, but if I only do seven or six, that's still a, a decent sized army. That's still pretty knights. good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, I think I'm, I'm more worried about building the diorama than I am about painting the models. Fair enough. So, um, but that's apocalypse. Yeah, do, do check it out if you get the chance. Um, you know, if you get to a local gaming store and someone can put it on there for you to play. All the War Scrolls are available to download for free from the GW website. Which is nice. Yeah. So it is a very easy game to pick up and, and start playing. Yeah. Alright, then let's move on, shall we? Yeah. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. So as I mentioned at the start of the show, I've seen a lot of people talking online about encounter building in Wrath and Glory and how to get the sort of mix right of the different threat level types and how many opponents to put in against their, their, um, players because there isn't a lot of guidelines in the book about what makes a balanced encounter. And well, first of all, I'd like to start this entire discussion out with do encounters have to be balanced. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. And, and we've spoken about this on the show before is the fact that yeah, game systems like D and D have spoiled us into thinking that every encounter needs to be a balanced encounter, so to speak. And that's not necessarily the case. Every encounter needs to be thematically appropriate to what's happening in the story at the time and, and yeah. needs it needs to be something that responds to and is driven by the character's actions in the narrative. Um, if that means they get a cakewalk or that means they get a really tough encounter, that's the way it falls. And it's up to the players to respond and draw narrative in that, in that way. So always put yourself in, in the story's position. I mean, if I'm the governor of a planet yep. and I'm corrupt and I'm meeting a group of people who I know are inquisitorial acolytes and I know there are six of them, I'm not going to go, well, I should take just enough bodyguards to protect me if it goes back. No, you're going to take as many as you think you need to make sure that you will win. Yeah. You know, if that's 20 guys, you will take 20 guys. I mean, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Why would the governor ever say, nah, you know what? 20 guys seems like a lot for them to fight through. (laughs) So let me, um, I'm going to, I'm going to try and break this down. So, so first off, I'm going to be speaking mainly about encounter wrath and glory, but some of the stuff we're going to talk about, Applies to encounterability in any game, really. Some of the yeah. some of the concepts. But to start off with, on the let's go on the rule side first off. That is that Wrath and Glory has these three or potentially four threat levels. So you've got a troop, which is basically just goons, goons, hide goons. Um, they get no personal ruin. They still roll a wrath dice, but they cannot crit. They cannot get complications, and they cannot, under any circumstances, soak. Yeah. Right? Um, then you've got elites, which are your sort of more powerful enemies, uh, and they get no personal ruin. Um, however, they can crit, uh, and you can spend ruin on them to do things like to make them soak as well. And then finally, um, you get adversaries, which are usually your named opponents in your setting, um, and they do things like they get a personal ruin pool, special ruin abilities, things they can do, and plus they get all the benefits that characters do when it comes to things like um, wrath and um, uh, the wrath thigh and critical etc. And the last type is the the monster type, but they're really just a variation on these other ones. 
Um, so you got to remember first off in Wrath and Glory that when you look at an opponent's stat block, it will tell you what threat level applies to it at what level of gameplay. Yeah. So, you know, for example, Imperial Guard are basically going to always be troops, whereas a Chaos Space Marine is going to be, you know, an adversary or an elite for low-level group, but by the time you're getting to a Tier 3, a Tier 3, a Tier 4 group, they're going to be coming eventually troops um, because you're going to be killing lots of those. But, you know, and, and their stat block doesn't really change. Um, it's just the way that you apply to the game. It's designed to try and be balanced against what the opponent's going to have. With that being said, there is a section in the book which talks about the fact you can scale opponents because even a basic guardsman has three wounds um, and he's got a resilience and he's got an armor, I think a total of seven maybe or four, uh, six. You've got to get through before you can deal those wounds and when you deal enough wounds, he's going to be dead. Likewise, you know, a, a bolt gun from an opponent does as much damage at tier one as it does at tier five. Yeah. Because um, they may have more dice to get more bonus dice on it. So you can do things like you can scale the opponents within the scope of the game. So if I've got a whole bunch of guardsmen, I might just make them wound one for the purposes encounter because I don't want to spend all the time with the characters trying to knock down up wounds on the guardsmen when what they're really trying to do is take on the commander, you know, who's driving whatever is going on. So Yeah. And generally speaking, most of the time, if they can get through the armor of a guardsman, they're going to kill it anyway. He's exactly only got right. three wounds, and you don't want, as a GM, you don't want to be tracking how, which guardsman's got one wound left, which one's got two wounds left, which one. Yeah, especially once you mob those those troops up as well. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's very easy to say, okay, each, each sort of successful penetrating hit is a guy dead, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um. It's also worth considering that in the book they do have these quick and dirty stat blocks on page 408, where if I just want to have an idea about what should an elite have at my gameplay level, I can see here's a recommended attribute, here is a recommended skill, here's a recommended backup skills. Um, that way you can just throw something together easily. I don't have to worry about, okay, well, what is this combat servitor or this particular alien species going to be like? I can just say, well, for the purposes of challenging my opponents, I need to give them this sort of level of stats. Yep, and I've used that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I mentioned before mobs. So no stat block is assumed to be a mob by default. You know, you can have a mob of cultists or you can have one cultist. You know, a mob of guards and have one guardsman. A mob of confexes? Yeah, potentially, you know. <laughs> the thing is that when building your encounters, you need to think about when should I or when shouldn't I mob up my opponents, basically, or my, 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 my um, characters, because the advantage of mobbing is that you add every dish, every, when you've got enough guys, they add to the dice roll, which means that your guardsmen, who only have a last gun with its 7 plus 1 ED damage, who are shooting at tier 3 carries, who all have, you know, 8 armor, for example, and the, and the best they can hope to get is one wound. Most of the time, they'll do nothing. Occasionally, they'll do a shock. Um, they need to get more bonus dice to damage, which means they need more dice to hit, which means that you're going to get more dice when you mob up. So rather than having lots of ineffective shots, you might just get one shot, which actually does something um, from time to time. Yeah. The other thing is that, you know, individual guardsmen might be a challenge, but I want to have 10 of them there. You know, I don't want to have to roll, I don't want to factor in 10 individual people in my initiative order and have to work out who's going to go next and who's damaged for what, you know, so. Premium or mob makes that much easier as well. Um, and keep in mind that 
you can have multiple mobs of the same opponent. You can have a group of cultists coming from in front of the characters and a group of cultists coming from behind. And that's still two opponents in initiative order. But in reality, you're talking about, you know, five, ten guys in each direction. It, it has a more sort of dynamic style to it as well. Yeah. Um, I think that the best encounters work when you have a combination of opponents. The reason for that is that your group will often have both combat and non-combat characters. So, or sorry, combat-focused and not combat-focused, probably a better way to put it, because everyone in, in Wrath and Glory is going to have at least a weapon of some type, for example. Yes. So, short of making everything a threatening task or um, relying on non-combat characters to always just use interaction attacks, it does help to give them mooks, which those non-combat characters can go after, in order to feel like they are contributing and holding them off the major combat characters, rather than just sitting back and constantly intimidating to try and knock down the defense of the bad guy. Um, which, you know, if they need that eventually, they need that eventually. And I think there's this predilection towards having the final fight in a game be against one big, one BBEG. Yeah. You know, one big adversary. And I think you lose something somewhat when you've got that situation where you've got two people in the group that can do all the damage to it and two people who basically have to stay away from it lest they be killed and can't really hurt it, you know, so you need to make sure that there is stuff for them to do as well. Um, I'm going to talk to you about a couple of, just for your opinion, Mike. So, so these are a couple of encounters that, that I had in the APG, AP Gaming Real um, thing. So we've got four characters in our group first off. So yep. um, we've got a Space Marine Scout, a uh, Militarium Tempestus Scion, a Inquisitorial Acolyte, and an Eldar Ranger. So first off, all the characters have at least seven dice to a hit, you know, and have weapons pretty much... Every has a weapon which does at least a 10 plus 1 AD damage because... So, so I'd say they're all combat-focused characters for that respect. Yeah. Um, so our first big combat encounter as a group um, was against Orcs. So there were um, five individual Gretchen. There were two mobs of four boys per mob. Um, there was a... Uh, and then there was a knob, a boss knob. So how do you feel that as, as an encounter build? I would have gone with one mob of Gretchen, yep. one mob of four boys, four separate boys, and the knob. And the ilk knob. Yeah. So... That, that, that's just a grouping preference. Yeah. Because having the Gretchen separate is just going to be... It's just an annoyance. You're going yeah. to be ignoring them pretty much anyway. Uh, I mean, I should put it out. In terms of how it played out, we came upon the Gretchen in the, in the first... It was us and the Gretchen in the first combat round, and then everything turned up in the second combat round. Okay, yeah. Um, that, 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 so, that certainly changes the focus. Yeah, so it was more about trying to kill the Gretchen before they could run in warning body, but we failed in that respect, so, you know, all showed up. Wait up. Four combat characters <laughs> couldn't kill five Gretchen in one round. Yeah. Line of sight was an issue. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Gonna say you guys suck, but we got we got screwed in the next round of combat by the by the two mobs of boys because they all threw stick bombs. And the thing about about explosives in this game system is that you only need to hit the square, which is only a, a, a defense of two, and having a high defense. So playing a character that has has a high defense but a, a relatively low toughness, you're quite weak against explosives. Yes, you are. Um, and, and we were bunched as well. So, you know, we, because um, we we're coming through corridors, you know, so 
Um, and if they were doing it in mob as well, they're rolling the extra dice to hit. That means a lot of extra dice. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. two groups of four throwing all their stick bombs. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that 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 was a really tough encounter. So I think that at the end of the encounter, one person was unconscious but not in a dying state. Yeah. And two other characters were at least injured. One character was uninjured. All right, so now I'll give you another encounter example. So this was this was the climax of a recent game. So we had um, three groups of four cultists, so yep. three multiple cultists, one chaos space marine, yeah, and a demon host. This is a tough fight. That would be a really tough fight. Yeah, even for four combat characters. Yeah. And, and, and this, were, they, were they all close together or were they spread out? Oh, uh, they, they were spread out a bit. To, once again, we came through through a corridor, so everything happened in the mouth of the corridor. So we were able to limit how many people yeah. attacked at once. But the big thing was that so we had the space marine. Did, did the demon host have ranged attack? Uh no. Oh, it, it does, but it, it's it's not very not very effective. In fact, the demon host was like killed in one round pretty quickly. It was a chaos space marine, which oh. really. Because it, because it had a power sword, a power sword against tier tier two characters. <laughs> now, now, once again, that's what that's choppy, what, choppy. So, so keep in mind that uh, this is not anything about against the GM. The stat block for a chaos face marine in the book has a power sword, and it is a adversary for a tier two game, or no, I think it's an elite for a tier two game. Um, so yeah, that 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 looks like a balanced encounter. Balanced encounter. So, at the end of that encounter. Um, one character was making defiance checks to not be not be dead. One character was completely unconscious. One character was um, heavily wounded, and one character was untouched. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, what it was the big thing was that we just struggled to take wounds off the cast base marine because power because of its twelve resilience. Yeah. Um, and, and so with weapons that when you got weapons that are doing ten plus plus one AD. The best you can get without shifting dice is taking a point of shock off, and because this was a you know high level encounter, it could use it had it had personal ruin abilities, so it must have been adversary because it had it had a personal ruin pool. Mm-hmm. Um, it was soaking. It was soaking, and it was using abilities as well, like it had a death of the false uh, not the, um sorry venture along war type ability. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and pretty much it was any time any time it hit an ally, the ally went down. Um. So that was a t- that was a tough encounter. And did did you guys not not to sound mean? Did you guys have full warning that there was a chaos marine around? Um, okay, so we didn't, except for the fact that I noticed there was a chaos space marine figure on the table. <laughs> Figured, I wonder what the put that there. I wonder if there's a chaos space marine up ahead. <laughs> we, we we thought we, we thought it was just cultists. We didn't know about the chaos space marine. We didn't know about the demon host. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Um, but- it's a balancing that in that same situation, if you came across him in an open field and he was 150 meters away, that would have been a very different fight. Exactly right. Yeah, and and, and let me say, I mean, so I want I want to be quite clear on this that playing both of those in camp from the player's side, they both felt very deadly. You know, where yeah, the players were all going, well, oh, I don't know if we can actually make it through this. And after the encounter. You know, and we won both encounters, and there, and and there was no fudging on the GM's part. You know, the encounters played out, and we won both encounters. Um, and we sort of thought after as well, like, okay, that is what you wanted to combat, isn't it? Really, because it felt tense at the time, yet it was still achievable, and nobody died. 
you know, um, and that, almost you can say that that's the perfect encounter. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a chat, I had a chat with the GM of this game before these encounters about encounter building, you know, similar conversation we're having right now. And observationally from the time I spent with Wrath and Glory, I found that, um, a good boss level encounter, you know, in, in level encounter is basically one adversary, one elite, one mob. Yeah. Um, so that gives you three opponents to go after. That mob can be multiple people, obviously, as well. Um, and for a lot of time, it involves controlling the adversary while you deal with the lesser, the lesser start targets. That's it. Um, and this is going back to a game that um, that Ross Watson ran for me at one point, where once again, that, that was the big bad the BBGM was an adversary, an elite, and a mob. So a mob of cultists, a combat servitor elite, and a boss cultist adversary, basically. Um, and that, once again, that was a difficult but winnable and enjoyable at the end fight, just tense at the time. Um, when it comes to um, smaller fights, like not the end fight, um, I try to have um, probably at least three to four opponents. So it, whether that means not break, not having your mobs broke or not having, not having them in mobs, having them as individuals, or having you know a couple of elites plus a mob or something like that. Something um, I find that they make a more enjoyable encounter because certainly we've had some encounters in that game where um, we had I think two two mobs of six cultists. And like a cult leader, and we actually wiped the floor with them. Yeah, like the, 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 there was no challenge in that fight. It was like how many guys? It was a, it was a competition to see how many guys each character could kill each turn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like playing ten pin bowling with enemies, basically. Um, so it, 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 sometimes it, that's fun as well. So exactly right, and, and once again, you don't have to, every encounter doesn't have to be a perfectly balanced thing. It can be the fact that this is narratively important, or you know, we just need to give the characters a win. Yeah, you know, um, before they before they go into the next thing, or because you, you've got to keep in mind, well, that. You've, you've also got to give the characters a false sense of ability as well. So they're bowling <laughs> through the cultists, they go wandering into the next fight, going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, we can do this." They drop their guards, and suddenly you give them a tough fight. Yeah, and then it then they realise, oh, maybe we need to be more careful. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, look, the, the encounter right before that cast space marine encounter, the group was split, and so two of the characters had to fight four cultists. And I think they got to kill them all before the cultists got to take any action. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> there was exactly yeah no wounds or anything taken that, that would have complicated the, the the fight of the cast space room. So yeah, I mean, try to build variety. Don't just have lots of single troops. Like try to have a, an elite as a leader among troops or mobs that sort of thing. You know, try to have it so that you've got at least three to four opponents in the battlefield in order to create that diversity for the group. And, and when you're picking opponents to use it, it can often be dependent upon what you're actually fighting against. Like, you can't really say, okay, it's going to be, we've got two lictors, a Chaos Space Marine, and a Tau Pathfinder. That's sort of stuff. You know, they, they don't, they don't, um, they don't work well as a, as a, as a opponent group as such. But, exactly. you know, consider having a mixture of high and low defense. A mob high, of broodlords. High, high and low resilience to give characters with weaker weapons or weaker combat skills an opportunity to be doing something still as well as yeah. the, the, the combat wombats. Yeah, they've also got their, their interaction attacks as well Yeah, to, to, to help them out if they really can't do anything. Yeah. Um, because even with the lesser opponents to fight as well, at some stage all the lesser opponents are going to be dead. Yeah. Yeah. True. All right, then, that's my two cents. Yep. So let's move Sounds on to good. closing out the show.
More astropaths in the choir chamber. Message incoming. So before we finish off the show, um, we normally talk about any sort of feedback that we've received. And I was saying at the start of the show that uh, in the last couple of months we had Gen Con, uh, and there was obviously a Cubicle 7, um, both a booth and a presentation there. And uh, Jacob Smith, who has contributed to the show several times over the past several years, was at Gen Con, and um, he took the opportunity both to chat with the the team at the booth and also attend their panel. Yep. Um, he actually typed up his notes onto a Reddit post, which I'll include as a link in our show notes as well. But I'm going to go through those details here because he shared them with us, including answering or getting getting a question that we asked answered as well. So um, first off, he spent some time at the booth with the team there, and um, there were some things that were sort of hinted at. They said at one point that there was a possibility of a future D100 system pre-Dark Imperial, pre-Signatrix Maledictum game um, I couldn't say anything more about that. It's something that GW mentioned to them, but Wrath and Glory takes precedence for the time being, obviously. Yep. Um, I asked him to ask about, could they give any sort of idea of cadence on new material for Wrath and Glory? Because obviously at the height of the FFG days, we were seeing like one book for each thing coming out almost on a monthly basis. Um, he was saying that um, the the new material won't happen until next year, 2020 but that they are looking to basically see two new things per quarter. Um, so roughly a month and a half between, you know, between releases. Eight books a year. It's yeah. not that bad. That's, that's better than a lot of games. I can see you now. That's going to be right. Yeah. Um, he asked whether they would sell the Wrath and Glory dice singularly. Apparently, that's a hard no from GW. I'm not sure. I mean, GW sell dice as well. I'm not sure why that would be an issue, but it was a question that was asked and answered. The so, Wrath and Glory dice. Yeah. Okay. Strange. Okay. But okay. There you go. Um, uh, and there was talk about um, what will be uh, revised in the core set. Um, yeah, he was mentioning that that particular chat was about putting in um, a table for the campaign cards. So you can buy the campaign cards, a way to sort of re- realize those in the game. Yeah. Oh, he also asked, would there be an opportunity to get more acrylic tokens? And the answer was, they hope so. Yeah. Um, all right. So then onto the panel notes. So first off, they showed off obviously the um, the new artwork. Um, the revised core rulebook is the first priority for them to get out. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned before, they were talking about uh, a PDF update in September, which is now passed, and the core book hopefully launched in November. Um, it'll be the same core mechanics with some minor tweaks, um, a bit of repositioning of layout changes, uh, more focus on the game frameworks. So what that means when it comes out. Yeah. And um, there'll be a more streamlined version of character creation. Um, once again, they're, they're more focused on the impact of the Secretrix Maledictum on the Dark Imperium. They're expanding the lore of the Gilead sector uh, and going to include some more system information. I don't know if that's in the core book or in a future book. Um, there is no cross-pollination with Age of Sigma role-playing. We did talk about the fact that they use terms like archetypes and dice mechanics look similar. Um, it looks like that really is just coincidence. That they they are, are distinct systems. Okay. Um, Jacob asked about will we see things like squats or arbitres, given their part of the Necromunda license. Um, it was just nothing specific yet. Okay. Um, will there be a future Chaos Online book? And that's not being ruled out, so it's a possibility. Um, let's see. What's happening with people that did original pre-orders? 
anybody that originally bought the book will get access to the updated PDF when it comes out. Um, so there'll also be a change log made available, which specifically calls out all the variations from the Ulysses North America publication. Okay. Um, segregation of archetypes in games is a GM and group choice. That's a statement there. Um, RTS um, from Cubicle 7 said that uh, he got to create a Space Marine chapter for the book, which in his, he said was the Hammers of the Emperor. Um, someone asked, would there be any material for the Imperial Sanctum? Uh, sorry, Imperium Sanctum, uh, which was a hard no. Um, expect new information, new material next year. We already knew that one. Uh, will there be anything for Horus Heresy? That would be cool, but right now there's working on Dark Imperium. And someone asked, would there be any canon Space Marine chapters appearing in the Gilead sector? And the answer is yes, the Absolvers will be appearing there. So okay. um, once again, a, a big thank you to Jacob, not only for attending those, both the, the booth and the uh, and the panel, but for, for taking those notes and, and putting up as well and for sharing them with us. So um, great work there. And I want to I'll include those show notes. I'll, I'll include that link in the show notes. Um, that's the sort of contact we had over the past couple of months, probably because most people assumed that we were dead and gone because we haven't created the episode in a while. We're not dead or gone. Um, we've just been busy slash sick slash in other countries. Yeah. Um, I, I would make some sort of promise here about getting our cadence back up to scratch, but I, I don't know what the series is going to be in the near future. We're just going to see. I've got a new job now with an actual roster that makes sense and is told to me in you know, in enough time to make plans, so yeah, we should be able to sort something Talk to me, talk to me when you get a 9 to 5 job. <laughs> they don't exist, mate. I work, well, I, 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 I have a obsessive 9 to 5 job. I sort of work my own hours, though. But, uh... Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so if you do want to contact us, our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Uh, our Twitter account is at grimdartpodcast. You can also email us at show at grimdartpodcast.com. Don't forget my involvement in um, the AP Gaming Real um, Wrath and Glory campaign uh, every Saturday at 8 p.m. Eastern time uh, on uh, twitch.tv slash AP Gaming Real. Uh, coming up next episode, 108, um, we're going to be talking about vehicles in Wrath and Glory. We've already covered Void Ships, but the vehicle system is a bit different, so we'll cover that off. Yep. Uh, we're going to talk all about the Tech Priest. Yep. Uh, for want of anything else, because there may be other stuff that comes out between now and then, but if we don't get something else, I'm going to review Aeronautica Imperialis. Aeronautica it, it fits Imperialis. The, it fits the, um, the, the vehicle. vehicle theme a little bit, and uh, it's been taking the gaming world by storm right now. Some people are calling it an X-Wing killer. I'm not calling it X-Wing killer, but it is a good game. Really? Um, and uh, in terms of a, a discussion topic, I wanted to talk about, in campaign planning, how do you choose your game scale? Like, you know, is it, is it just... This world, this whole system, is a galactic campaign. How do you sort of plan and write around that in your in your game planning phase? Yeah, that'll be episode one hundred eight coming to a podcasting platform near you sometime between now and the time. Um, thank you for listening to us today. I hope you had a good time. Hope you enjoyed the show. We certainly enjoyed creating it, and we look forward to catching up with you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Ulysses North America. 140,000, Wrath and Glory, Dark Heresy, Road Trader, Deathwatch, Black Crusade, Only War, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop permission. Ulysses North America is a trademark of Ulysses Media and Spiel Distribution GmbH. All other materials and trademarks are their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grim Dark Podcast. 
All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music was composed by Jens Kjolstoffer and is used under license.